We are live. There we go. Hold on. Live, live. Let me bring up. Let's see. I thought I'd share the co-host, man. It's just waiting. I'll just add you as a speaker. <laughs> What's up? Yo. Hey, hey. Hillary. Why is that not working? The co-host thing is not working, Sean. Hold on. Do it one more time. Theo, this was your Boom. first conference talk. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Is that that unbelievable? It's just like when I see people who create as much content as you, I just assume you also are in the conference game because it's just it's all the same crap <laughs> at the end of the day. I actually disagree. I found that significantly harder for myself than any of the creation stuff I did do. I really love the live creation workflow because if I do something wrong or stupid, somebody in chat will call me out immediately and I can fix it before I post the video. With this, that's a lot harder. And I like found myself mm. checking my notes and like making sure everything was as agreeable as possible ahead of time. Yeah, I just ran through a demo like I was just doing a live stream. So there's partly as to the expectation you can put on yourself to what you do, but you probably did a better job than me. So I will give you that. So Scott, you want to kick us off? I think we've yeah. got all of the panelists. Uh, Absolutely. Here. Yeah, let's. So excited. Oh my gosh. All right. So y'all check this out. We are streaming obviously live on Twitter spaces, but we're also streaming this live on YouTube Insane. it's working. I can see it. And I'm also sharing my phone screen so we can see all the talking heads. <laughs> yes, this is a beautiful thing. So thank you all so much for joining us today. Welcome to this week, July 27th of 2022. This is the Composability Summit Day. How exciting, y'all. Give me some claps, some high fives, some, yeah, all right. Yeah. It's actually just day one. There's this two is. more days. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, this is just the first launch day. But sorry, keep yeah. going. No, you're good. Yes, today's the first day. We have the 28th and the 29th to follow with lots of great talks. We've already had so many great talks go out today, and we got several premiering tomorrow. So if you haven't registered yet, go do that. Go to composability.dev and register now so you don't miss out, folks. There's some really amazing people speaking there. And we have several of those speakers on this stage today. So you're going to get to hear from them during this Build Verse Buy composability talk a panel i guess you could call it really excited thank you all sir for joining us and remember typically this is a this is a open mic kind of environment but we're going with this panel for today for the composability summit so we will bring people up later on and i think ishan's going to go more into that here. Yep. so let me introduce you who is the vp of product for edgeo and obviously the co-host here at javascript jam Thank you so much, everybody, and I can't wait to get this value started and talk started. Let's go. Yeah, so thanks, Scott. So as Scott noted, we're going to do this a little differently than our normal JavaScript Jam open mic night format. We're doing this during the conference, so we decided let's bring the conference to JavaScript Jam Live. So we'll start with a panel discussion, and our topic is build versus buy for composability. Your composable architecture is a set of Lego bricks pieced together from various services and systems. How do you decide which of those bricks you're going to build yourself and which ones you're going to buy potentially from a vendor or take something open source and try and maintain it? So the format today is we'll start the first half really myself and the panelists having questions. And then the second half will be more like our typical JavaScript jam format. We're going to stay on topic for build versus buy, but I invite the audience to raise their hands. We'll bring them up to the stage and they can ask questions of the panelists on build versus buy. We can go from there. So really looking forward to it. And as, as Scott noted, we're also recording this and simulcasting it to YouTube stream for the conference as well. So let, with that, let me just briefly call out our speakers. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask them to go around the room and give their name, their title, the company they work at, and a one-minute description for the audience. And then I'll start off with questions. Really quick, where are you guys yeah. streaming this? Because I can't find it on the YouTube. Is it unlisted maybe accidentally? It's possible. Scott, do you have an answer to that one? I am looking into it. I'll let you know. Okay, I see it, but it's not Arius is waiting. It might not be synced okay. up with the premieres on the composability.dev website because this one is live and the others are. Is it on the same premieres. YouTube channel, though? It is on JavaScript Jam. Yeah, it should be. And yeah, you're not live on YouTube right now. All right. I'm showing a preview of it, but. Okay, I will yeah. let Scott. I'll look into it. That. Thank you, Theo, for the, for the QA. 
So with that, actually, let's start out. The first panelist today, Theo, he's also a speaker. In fact, the talk just before this panel at the conference that premiered was Theo's. It was called Buying Time. It was really about the same topic, build versus buy. Theo, why don't you just tell folks a little bit about your name, title, where you work, and a one-minute background. Yeah, of course. I'm Theo. I used to work at Twitch. I now run a company called Pink. We just did the Y Combinator Winter 22 batch. Now we're making it easier to do collaborative, especially for streamers, YouTube creators, things like that. The talk was mostly about how I make decisions around like long-term investment in technologies as I've worked at a big company like Twitch and moved over a bunch of things from the bad early decision to good later decisions. And now I'm in a position to do that again, as well as helping other startups. So I think a lot about not just what technology makes today better, but what technology makes tomorrow easier. Thank you. Okay, next up is Mahela from Valtech. Mahela, why don't you tell us the name, title? I mentioned where you work. You're also a Mock Alliance ambassador and just one minute about your background. I am. Thanks, Ian. So Mahela Mazenga, I'm CTO for Valtech in North America, and I have about 15 years in the SaaS platform development space and also some time on the commerce side at Sharper Image as their ex-CTO. ton of experience building commodity SaaS offerings and also buying them and composing them. Great. Thank you. Next up is Chris from Commerce Tools. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure thing. Hey, guys. My name is Chris Huff. I'm a solutions architect at Commerce Tools. And Commerce Tools, for those of you that don't know, is a, it's a commerce portfolio company that kind of kicked off the composability within commerce. Most of my time is spent working with customers that have already bought into the composability concept and bringing them on board to commerce tools. But we do deal a lot with which components to decide on building versus buying. I've also spent the greater part of the last 15 years or so in, in an architecture consult, consulting role on SaaS platforms. So happy to be here, excited about this subject. Great. Thanks, Chris. And then rounding it out is Ellery, who leads a director of engineering for the Edgeo Expert Services team. Ellery, why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks. It's great to meet everyone. Uh, as Ishan said, I'm Ellery. I work at Edgeo Expert Services. And so I'm the director of engineering for AppOps Expert Services. My group helps customers build high-performance websites using Jamstack architectures and specifically composable architectures for the e-commerce vertical. So we focus on building headless websites that are high converting and passing, in many cases, highly exceeding core web vitals. We've helped customers achieve 99 Lighthouse scores on their websites. So we're very focused on performance. So looking forward to the conversation. It's great to meet everyone. Great. So let me actually start <clears throat> off with the unexpected. Is, is And we'll get to how you decide on build versus buy, but... What do you think is the biggest misconception you see when teams first jump headfirst on an API first or composable stack that they either have misaligned expectations and how that translates potentially into build versus buy? And Mahila, I'll start with you since you've actually helped lead teams through this in multiple contexts. Number one, I think that the, that concept itself, although maybe not new to us and large, is still going through a period of adoption. So having APIs does not mean that you're API first. And you have to really <laughs> understand what that means and why, it's, why that's important. And I also don't think that having composition in places doesn't mean that you have a composable stack. So those are two very different animals and it's incredibly easy to get the architecture orchestration integration wrong and quite honestly end up with a monolith via composable and APIs anyways and microservices. So I think you need a champion, an expert on your team, whether you also buy that or build that through internal expertise to really carry forward the sense of what true composability means. I'll turn it to you as a follow-up or anybody else on the panel. Is there a litmus test for when you're truly composable? I like that concept of you may have thought you built it composable, but you ended up with a monolith anyway. Is there a suggestion of how you can evaluate that? So you don't I'd say that yeah. I'd say the most important piece is that the inputs and outputs for any given part are standardized enough that you can swap it out. Something like Hasura, I wouldn't consider composable in any way, shape, or form, because the thing that is storing your data 
is its own standard that you have no access to, but the thing you're accessing that data through GraphQL is a standard in the vaguest sense of this is a way to define an API, but it's not a standard in the sense that's an API you can take and port to other things. Like I have had more luck moving from Postgres to MySQL. Hell, I've had more luck moving from Worker TV to MySQL than doing anything on an old Basura-based code base. Interesting. And I know one of the concepts you talked about in previous episodes of JavaScript Jam Live, but you didn't mention it in your buying time talk. You have an analogy you're famous call for called the ship of theosis. Do you want to just explain that rule of thumb to folks? Because I think that really dovetails yeah, nicely to what you just described. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of any given piece being replaceable because as much as you think when you make a decision, it does not isn't necessarily going to hold as you keep going. So I really like to think in terms of how much how expensive is this to adopt, but more importantly, how expensive is it for us to move off this in the future? The ship of Theosis is a, a meme that the communities come up with where every piece in the stack can and often should be replaced when new things come out and different solutions happen. Like the code base for ping, for example, started as a styled component V code base that I moved over to Tailwind, Next.js, TRPC. I moved the data from Worker KV to Postgres on RDS, to Postgres on Heroku, where I stayed for a day before I was my mistake and moved over to RDS, eventually moving over to PlanetScale with MySQL. But the ability to swap any one of these parts at any given time is what one of the most like valuable parts of composability you're rather than having to rewrite the whole code base when you run into problems you rewrite the parts that are causing the problems do you want to explain the greek parable for those who aren't familiar with it yeah of course it's a, the meme is based on the ship Theseus parable the idea of the a ship traveling the waters and parts keep breaking and being replaced if once you've replaced every part of that ship is it still the same ship yeah, I think it's a really good way to to think about composability and, and does and the ship need TypeScript? Does TypeScript <laughs> help the ship transition? I'll then turn it over to, to to Chris. What do you think? Especially you mentioned you have a lot of folks who come to you guys maybe a little further on the composability maturity curve or headless curve. Do you still see a common misconceptions or what do you need to educate prospects and customers about as they embark on this journey? Yeah, from the a couple different points, a, a couple the from the platform or product side, I think composability. If your features and functionality is coupled such that you need to utilize a specific module on your platform for other functionality, then then you're going to have a tough time calling yourself composable. On the customer side, so if we're looking about implementing composable solutions, I do see a lot of customers that come from the monolith. Um, monolith space and their technology teams from an architecture and development standpoint want to mimic all of the business entities and functionality that they see or that they're currently using on their monolith. And I'll give you an example is that for commerce tools from a commerce perspective, you want your front end application to be uh, your storefront front application, front end application to be as performant as possible. But a lot of these customers coming from these monoliths try to stuff in all of the data for the product catalog that they used to they're used to having, right? So your but really your front end storefront application doesn't care about your order fulfillment. That should be completely decoupled. Got it. That's a really interesting kind of tangible example. I'll then turn it over to you. What do you see as the common misconception? when folks are going to migrate to a composable stack. I think Halo made a really good point about what does it really mean to be API-driven? And a good example here is if you think about Shopify, for example, which is an out-of-the-box e-commerce platform, and you can build headless websites on it using Hydrogen or the Storefront API, but there are a lot of customers who just use the traditional Shopify theme, and that's an API. They give you clear documentation for how to integrate with it, but now your UI is tightly coupled with the platform. And you made a comment about Legos earlier that you want to build your composable stack out of Lego blocks. In a past life, we used to explain this a little bit differently where we would show them a picture of different colored Play-Doh in a ball and then a picture of Lego blocks and just tell them, we're trying to take you from Play-Doh to Lego. Let's make sure nothing is tightly coupled. You can very easily replace components as much as possible. And as much as possible, avoid building things that are unnecessary. Don't go build wrapper API layers on top of third-party components in case you might swap them out 
because you're worried about one of the API interfaces changing. The move, I try to grow organically and smartly and pick things that are easy to swap things out of. And I think from a composable standpoint, you really want to try to go pick what are the best products for you? There's no such thing as the best e-commerce product or the best content management system or the best inventory management system, marketing, MarTech product, et cetera. So go find what works best for you and your team, glue it together through a headless framework like Svelte, Nux, get something out the door ASAP. And if you do that, you're set up so that if you run into a scale problem with one of your products or you realize something doesn't really meet your needs, it's pretty straightforward to go rewrite that part of the application. Just change the interface and migrate your content over. That that's actually a good seg to the build versus buy. So now we're at the you're basically advocating to take a very agile, progressive, incremental approach. Build some piece of viable value first rather than a big bang rewrite to, to totally de-risk it if I'm to extrapolate. When customers or prospects do that, first to Ellery, and then I guess next to Hila for you, since you you advise a lot of folks through Valtech, where do you see customer deciding on build versus buy? How do they, what are the rubric or the rules or litmus tests they use to decide which components that they end up deciding they have to build in that process and which ones do they buy? Yeah, so let's talk about e-commerce specifically for a minute. If you're in that industry, performance is a really important thing to you. Backend flexibility, less so important, but you want to make sure you have a very fast website. It's very clean. Users don't feel a sluggish experience. You want them to come back and you want them to convert at a very high rate. So for a lot of our customers, we tend to emphasize build the front end that meets all of your needs and use composable building blocks for the back end, whether it's open source and you can see how it's built or they're very transparent with how they work, that's probably less of a concern. And we've helped customers build websites that do hundreds of millions ARR, over a billion ARR with a lot of off-the-shelf components comprising their backend and just a open source front-end framework gluing everything together, hosted on a platform like Layer Zero, for example. So I don't think there's a strong inflection point where you need to go start building things, especially on the back end. It really comes down to when do you need to be a differentiator in the market? And for an e-commerce company or for a startup, I think getting time to market, getting visibility with your customers is really important. If you're building a platform, then it becomes very different, right? Because now your differentiator is the features you provide, your like performance becomes a differentiator as well, down to milliseconds. Whereas for a lot of other customers, that's not really the place you're in right now. So I think for the vast majority of people who, if you're e-commerce and you're thinking about adopting a headless architecture and really adopting mock, for example, I would strongly recommend build as little as possible aside from your front end. Because if you use a site builder, you're not going to get good front end performance, but everything else, try to find what works best for your teams and build off of that. Interesting. So it's basically, if I was to summarize, it's buy for everything except where your differentiation is, and that's where you focus where to build. Correct. Okay. Mahila, as a mock I think Theo has his hand up. Oh, Theo, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I mostly agree, but there are some like... Oh, I love when panels disagree, because that's when you get the most interesting discussion. So feel free to, to disagree. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Believe me, I'm incapable of not disagreeing when I disagree. I think that... <laughs> When your situation is simple enough that you have a single differentiator, I don't know if that's the point where I would start betting on composability, where if the other parts of your stack are simple enough, then thinking about them at all almost feels like a wasted investment. If I am trying to build an e-commerce storefront, yeah, absolutely, go hop into Next.js or Hydrogen. And then when you need like the backend, those frameworks aren't just front-end frameworks. Uh, like I, I get in this argument a lot. Next.js is a back-end framework. It happens to have a really good front-end built into it, but it is back-end. It serves you HTML or Java or JSON from a server. It is a really good starting point to be that layer when you do need to make a back-end call. And I think that people, once they are in Next.js and they need something that looks like a back-end, they start reaching for Nest.js or Hasura or all these other things. When Next.js actually provides everything they need right there, just write a server function, write a hundred server functions, write a thousand of them. And once you run into a scaling issue with that framework, the functions you wrote are just JavaScript functions that are express compliance. You can port them to anything else in the world. So I think that like Next.js isn't just good as a way to build the front end and then figure out which API service to buy after. 
it's a great place to build that API service as well. And if your API is simple enough that you can work with one of those like third-party providers like a Hasora or a Firebase, you should not and instead own that thing because it's so much cheaper to have it in the same code base. I completely agree with that. I would definitely advise people just use next routes or next routes to build your APIs. Don't go overboard and say, oh, I've heard of Kubernetes. That sounds great. We need to go spin up EKS or AKS or whatever KS, depending on your cloud provider. Now you're just bringing in a lot of operational overhead to manage a Kubernetes cluster. There's costs associated with it. It's not going to be elastic. So you're going to pay for this stuff at night while no one's browsing your product. And it just adds unnecessary complexity. Totally agree. I was going to make a joke about Kubernetes earlier. I'm genuinely curious how many of the like e-commerce places that you're advising are on Kubernetes because that just sounds like a disaster. No comment. So is there a common, and I'll open this up to Chris and Mihaila as well, is there a common set of components that you can point to and you'd say greater than 50% of the people we've worked with, they ended up buying these, this thing because they don't feel like building it themselves, whether it's, I don't know, database hosting or the payment system, like where do you see most commonly people decide to build that component and where do they buy? Or is that you can't actually draw those lines? There isn't any commonality. Please tell nobody's building payment systems anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with that. So pay, payments, 100%, I would say. Definitely greater than 50%, but close to 100%. But even some of the other things that are almost commodities, but not and difficult to implement, but not difficult to integrate with, like search. We Greater than 50% of our customers are also hooking up with some sort of search provider alongside the payment. Mahela, so, you would, yeah, go ahead. Are there other ones you'd add to that? Yeah, there's tons of undertones here that I agree with. And I think you want to buy commodity, right? I, I think it's different. Today is different than it was many years ago because just there just weren't as many commodities to buy. So I think the ecosystem looks very different today. And there are a lot of incredible cost-effective options for brands or clients, et cetera, to really harness so they can focus on their core business needs. So I think the closer the tech gets to the customer is probably where you're going to be more creative. But I think it, it also underlines in where do you need scale? So truly, you can build small features that are likely to not get used by a large customer base. But if you actually need an incredible amount of scale, even as it applies to the front end, then you're likely still getting into buy conversations versus build. So for me, it's truly about maturity. Of course, wouldn't want to build a payment system, but who knows why somebody would want to take that option. And it's all about maturity and what the business actually needs. So focus on what you need to drive value for the business and buy everything else. How much you mentioned scale, how much does maintenance play a factor here? And I bring this up because it may be tempting for some folks to say, here is an open source version of something. And maybe there's a hosted version of it. Maybe there's not that's been productized, but it could be very tempting to say, oh, we can just adopt this and maintain it ourselves. Have you seen that work out well? Or is adopting a product that has an open core or open source component to it in this decision? If you are adopting an open source product into your composition that you need to maintain is different than purchasing a product that has open source as part of its framework. It matters a lot. Again, I'm advocating for you to focus on what's unique to your business and probably maintenance is not going to make it on that list. And that's part of the reason, uh, an additional part of the reason why you buy, because all of that maintenance is offloaded to a SaaS company. It's no longer keeping you up at night and you can spend that time on a much higher level of execution for the organization. Yeah, and I would say you probably can get me onto an airplane where the computers are running Windows as the operating system. But at the same time, I don't look too closely behind the curtain at how a lot of these SaaS and PaaS products are built. I focus a lot more on uptimes, SLAs, performance, and these types of indicators. Theo, I believe you look closely at this in your decision-making. Do you have a different take in terms of how important that it's got an open core is? Because I know you talked earlier about being able to migrate off and maybe 
open source, at least having an open core gives you some kind of mitigation plan or escape strategy if you need it? Rather than an open core, I look more for standards on top and bottom. I think that PlanetScale is a really interesting example here where they are an open core in the sense that like Vitesse is the core of their whole business and like the text that they ship, but it is not necessarily the part I think about. And there are like nice DX wins and general deployment stories, like greatness overall. So I never have to worry about the scale of IDB. But if I ever did, or I was having problems with planet scale, or the price was to spike in a way that was unpleasant, it is still MySQL. I can still do a MySQL dump off it and move to something else. The standard that it's on top of is one that I understand and am confident enough in to make the move if I ever have to. I don't necessarily look for open cores, although like they do help me build stronger like confidence. What I look for is open standards on top. There are plenty of things with open cores, like I, I think it was EdgeQL. No, it wasn't EdgeQL. That's actually cool. There was some EdgeDB that was entirely open source, but the core team just shut down one day. They all left. And if you had bet on that database, sure, it's open source. You can maintain it yourself. But now when you were betting on something because you thought it would be easier to use, now you're maintaining an open source library to keep using it. That's the vi- long-term viability of the service. And that's something you mentioned in your that went, was on the conference earlier today. That really puts in sharp relief. Let's move on to call it the more soft or considerations. How much does it matter the ecosystem and hiring and team preferences around a particular technology when you're trying to figure out what goes into the stack in terms of buy versus build? And especially when you've got maybe a team that's gung-ho about building things and it just sounds exciting to use whatever might be a hot buzzword like Kubernetes, how do you shape putting into the right perspective whether it really is a realistic idea to say, hey, we're going to build all the things? I think you had a twofold question in there, Ishan. In terms of the people, I'm I'm a strong believer that I expect people to learn new things. Prior knowledge in a specific tech means almost absolutely nothing to me because I also expect that it will change. Five years from now, we're going to be talking about something different. But in terms of preparing the team for a new paradigm, you have to have really strong learning and development programs that you can tap into to make sure that they're learning something that has a very specific point of view as set by by the organization and that it's consistent and you're going to get the same of the learning program and the message for each individual. Again, you really need that advocate internally that does understand the paradigm that you're moving to well to be able to disseminate that and really be a champion within the org for it. Thank you. I think from an offering standpoint, from a platform, I think it's important not just to be unopinionated, but especially if you're new, you have to make it easy for the developers and users out there to get on. Is it possible to create SDKs across the board on different languages so that you're not, you don't require that your potential customers specialize or upskill just to just to onboard? You mentioned, Mahila, this idea that you need to have a training and onboarding program. You've worked with a lot of companies at different scales. Just outline what that might look like, just to make it more concrete for the audience. It all depends on the type of transformation that you're after. So let's and recognize, I think all of the speakers here look like they come from SaaS backgrounds. So it's very different from an organization that has been on a monolith for 20 years, because it also means something very different to the ways of working and their level of agility. So I think the approach that you take to create the program has to be really specific to the team that you understand that you have, their learning styles, and ultimately your end goal. But I'm certainly a fan of hands-on type of learning and development. Create a fictional POC that encompasses all of the technologies that you're targeting and pass it over to the team in a guided manner and have them build something in 30, 60, 90 days. I don't know that in in periods of transformation that you're going to get anything more effective than that because we all know that hands-on learning is always exceptional to to read it. This brings up, I think, a baseline question we should have started with at the beginning. And by the way, we're past the halfway point, so feel free to raise your hand. We'll bring you up to the stage and we can start having audience questions for the panel. But the question that I maybe we should have raised earlier, especially for Ellery, Chris, and Mahila. You guys have helped a lot of companies go through it. I think, Theo, you've been in a case where it was, I think, what I'd call a net new building from scratch. 
But where you're taking an existing company and you're trying to migrate them over or help them migrate to composability, what's the range of times you've seen that actually take in terms of months or weeks or quarters, typically for a customer to, to get, say, let's call it the first unit of output that's composable, not necessarily migrating the whole stack? Highly variable, in, in my opinion. And again, I think that it all depends on who you can leverage within mm-hmm. the organization to move that initiative forward and their expertise and their background. But the biggest question also is, how do you not get yourself in the same position again in 20 years? So it's really, are you building a culture of innovation? Do you understand what that means? So it's constant, it's iterative, it's curious. And if you haven't had that, it's probably why you've stagnated for 20 years on on the same, of, same type of technology. So this is more of a culture shift and it takes more than just tech to transform. And a lot of that equation is people. It also depends on how fast the organization can move in a transformation. So if they can move fast, you're looking at three, four months. Uh, If they can't move fast, then you're looking at two years. Great. Yeah. I just wanted to ahead, say Chris. it's entirely the number of people. That it's the people and their willingness more than the tech itself, almost always. Yeah, I will agree with both of those points. I can provide an example. We have had a very large retailer go live with a small subset of their purchases on their commerce platform, but within four months. And they did so migrating off of a, a custom-built AS400 uh, solution. But I think that's one of the tenets of a composable solution, right, is that you are able to have such a small feature set that, or such a decoupled feature set that you can use a strangler pattern, even though you're coming from a monolith. All they need to do is build out the services in between to communicate. So this company actually came on board and was accepting orders just using checkout. So they had that tangible thing live within four months that they could use as a, their starting point. Wow. So AS400, that must have been a manufacturer. I was going to, bro, Nifty wanted to come up and ask a question, I think, here. Yes, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to touch on the maybe shill a little bit for current fad interest buzzword of the Kubernetes thing. I would say that, and this kind of ties into what the analogy, Theo's ship of I don't remember. I'm not like a classical. Yes, that amazing story. It kind of ties in the story on the like infrastructure data pipeline side of things. So I would say Kubernetes is not something that you'd need for a startup that's going to build like a product to to go direct to consumer, or even like e-commerce or streaming or any anything like that you wouldn't need it but if you're like an older mature company that uses data to make business decisions like you need executive dashboards and like doing a bunch of analytics and data warehousing maybe machine learning and like doing all these kinds of things deep and you have a whole bunch of analysts and stuff like that that's when you would need like data pipelines business intelligence data warehousing and and cloud was from on-prem to cloud was the you know 2000s to 2010s or to mid 2010s 2015 or so but then more recently the shift is going to kubernetes and what it does is it takes off it takes emphasis takes the emphasis off the in particular the particular cloud where you have vendor lock-in like whether it's aws google azure or one of the other ones it abstracts it out like the lego blocks where you can have one kubernetes logical layer on top of one or the other cloud or multiple clouds and you can swap out the components or whatever it doesn't matter once you put it on kubernetes it's just that's it's a build once run anywhere kind of platform for that for pipelines and stuff like that so that's all i want to say there's also that's also a great case where you can buy that now kubernetes i've uh, it was certainly a part of a massive transformation that that we did, and it has its place. It's a mature tool. And also, if we're talking about self-managed Kubernetes, you're in for a lot of long nights. Again, the more mature the tech is, the more you have to configure. It's advisable that you go a different route if you don't have a team to support that. I like the point that was made earlier, the idea of what are your differentiators? 
if you're not selling developer tools and your company isn't directly facing like developers trying to solve weird info problems, you probably shouldn't be solving weird info problems with things like Kubernetes is a great tool for the, those specific problems if that's the problem space that you live in. But very few people here, statistically speaking, are going to be in that problem space. The average developer faces users, not other devs. And those technologies are much better for when the dev teams are facing dev teams are facing dev teams are facing another company's dev team. I think we have another person from the audience. Jacob, did you have a question for the panel? Yeah, question slash statement. Also, what's up, Theo? Howdy, howdy. <laughs> so, what's up, Jacob? Hey, Anthony. I guess one thing I'd throw out there is what would be everybody's take here for things like, I guess, it's a new-ish concept. So you have the Cloudflare workers develop, developer platform, and then the, Sunil put it way better, and Theo probably has more context on this with his conversations with Sunil Pai, who's who I work with, is along the lines of the platform as a service for platforms uh, as a service. <laughs> kind of like this, like, so. buying... Like you're buying a way to build for other people that are building for people to buy. The way Sunil put it, and we're still like working on words for it, was service as a platform. So rather than you buy some database and then you call that database with your database client, instead you might buy something with a database in their web system, write a quick JavaScript function that outputs whatever format you specifically need, and then you call that from the database system. So it's, what is the in-between of database as a service and GraphQL as a service? It's database as a service with a service on top where you can write your own custom code. And that's a trend that is we're starting to see more of things like the superbase functions, things like mm -hmm. Cloudflare's data store, like from both sides, we're seeing the convergence of the platforms and the services almost inversely from how we're used to. And it is an interesting trend. I would argue a lot of the companies doing this are doing it because it forces more in a space where there wasn't any. Like a planet scale has a kind of fragile ground right now because if your company gets big enough and or like the price of planet scale gets too high for you, you can move off somewhat trivially. The all core pieces are open source and the standards are pretty standard too. But if I built half my company's APIs literally inside of planet scale GUI, I'm screwed. It's a form of lock-in is what you're, basically, it's, you see this sometimes with AWS. If you've, you've got a, a million different services across AWS, you've maybe set up and then having to migrate off all of that, it's just service by service is going to be a bit of work. There's also like uh, SDKs, because if you think of, you could use Superbase just for Postgres, and then you could port that anywhere you want that supports Postgres. So if you build everything around Superbase SDK, then all of a sudden your code is no longer portable. Yeah. But this feels like a question for, I think, people who are building platforms for others, so to speak. Is that an accurate statement here compared to, I forgot who said it in the panel earlier, but the closer the tech gets to the user or the customer, that's where you focus and the rest you abstract away. And so if you are really close to the customer as a business and you're not building a platform for somebody else to get close to the customer, it feels that's the litmus test you would use here. If your customer is a somebody built a platform, then you worry about this. If your customer is an actual user, then you don't worry about this. Would that, that be a fair statement? Yeah. So it's actually what I was really coming up here to, to emphasize was there was a lot of conversation that was really leaning towards and favoring like the idea that the user, quote unquote, is going to be some sort of a customer, client, or somebody at the other end of a e-commerce or blog website or whatever it may be. Whereas like a lot of the people that say are quote unquote users for like the stuff that I'm building right now at Cloudflare, they're engineers. So it's, we still have to keep the same things in mind though. Like we have to consider UX or DX, whatever you want to call it. And we have to consider like how abstract we want to make it or how low level we want to make it. Like these are all the same. How much of it do they really want to build and how much do they want to buy? Yeah, it's actually a really important and interesting point. One that's near and dear to, to my heart personally, because, you know, what we do in my day job for Edgeo is we build products for developers, like our customers are developers. I think most of the folks in this audience are developers, and that's a different set of users and different set of concerns. And you're right that the way we've laid this out is really about the consideration of build versus buy for that audience and not for the people who are building platforms for developers. It's like that old story of, they say, what does the world sit on? It sits on, I think, some turtles. 
or an elephant that sits on turtles. And then the question is, what's below that? It's like turtles all the way down. And so it's that layer beneath. And so it is another area of dimension of consideration that I think we haven't really touched on, but it's worth noting. And definitely one that's near and dear to our heart as well. I try my best to frame this as like people who are facing users that aren't developers. And I'm a, I've always felt like developers think as though the customers are developers too a little too often. So I try to intentionally push really hard the other direction. Back to the service of the platform and how that fits here though. If you're a developer company facing developers, especially if you're facing newer developers or adoption problems because your stuff involves too much buy-in on the other person's side, Things like adding the ability to write like JavaScript in a REPL to transform that data shape as like a service on top of your platform are nice wins on that side. And I get why the developer companies are doing it because it improve or it increases lock-in, which obviously they want. And it also it like reduces friction to make the thing work the first time in a demo or a getting started project, stuff like that. It helps those companies get adopted more easily and it makes it harder to move off of them in the future. On the other side, though, if you're a company that's facing users, how do you decide if you should use one of these new things? I think it depends largely on what the expectations for that project are and how bad the cost is of having to, like, are you going to use this for two functions that are never going to change? Or are you going to use this for all, all of your functions in a base that's going to grow from two developers to 20? I think that's really what my talk was meant to be about. Those types of functions have really low buy-in costs normal like medium maintenance cost and then really high buy-off cost so you have to be conscious of that as you make the decision if you're not building a developer platform but yeah if you're cloudflare go build a bunch of this shit it's going to make people really happy and it's going to make you a lot of money but on the other side be careful when you have these things so let me then turn this over to mahila and bring mahila chris and ellery in when you're making a decision on buy versus build how much does the developer experience that <clears throat> the people who are creating the platforms have created matter in the decision? It matters a lot. Of course, it depends on on what you're buying because not all things that you buy will necessarily matter in, in a developer experience. But again, those are certainly things that aren't part of your core business. Buying something that has an incredible developer experience again, to get quality and consistency and efficiency for the team should absolutely be a target. Yeah, that developer experience is dollars, right? If you have to invest a certain amount of time to build something, it's going to be easier for your team to build it. They want to use that platform and they're emotionally invested in it. Then that's a value add in that case. Now, if it's contradictory to the business needs, then you shouldn't do it. And you see that sometimes where the tech team is heart set on using some tool or some framework when really there's no business alignment and you need to make the right decision there and not do that. And this goes back to Mihaela's point that you should find people who are smart and eager to learn. It's not always about picking the new shiny thing. Sometimes you need to pick something more reliable or learn something new because you have a tool looking for a solution and you need to flip that around. Do we, do you often see that the products that people will buy into the stack rather than build themselves, I would imagine have a better developer experience because one of the things a company around a service can do in addition to maintain it and add new features to it is also invest in the develop better developer experience. And that's where teams might think, oh, I'll build this thing. And, but if you buy it, it'll actually have so much less friction and so much more productivity then if you had to build it yourself. There's a graphic, I think that was one of these, I think it was actually bytes.dev was a really great newsletter. They had a they had an example of a painting. This is what happens when you buy a service. And then when you try to build it yourself, it was like somebody hand drawed the face. That's always really stuck with me. Which would you rather use? Do you feel it's a usual rubric or is that not always the case? I don't know if it's a usual rubric per se. Yeah. Oftentimes if you're buying a solution, it's because if you didn't do that, you would need to go buy and configure a bunch of point products and manage them, handle orchestration, et cetera. This goes back to, we all want to avoid Kubernetes if we can. So if you look at something like uh, Egeo app platform or Cloudflare workers, like sure, you could go find a hosting platform for JavaScript, manage scalability, et cetera. But do you really want to do that? Do you want to be on the hook for disaster recovery, high availability, patching, security, et cetera? Or, based on where your scale is today, should you just go buy a product 
that works out of the box. You have a bit of vendor lock-in. If your business 10Xs or 100Xs, then you can look at bringing that in-house. But do you need to do that right now? And almost always the answer is no, you don't need to do that right now. Ellery and Aishan, I guess what you really need is the right person in the room <laughs> to make those decisions the proper way. And really employ true tech strategy in terms of how is it that your business is going to harness technology to bring value. So unfortunately, that's sometimes counter to what a developer might think. And the world and the business is bigger than all of us. So uh, you need to have the right technical leadership to, to have those conversations and to lead the team towards the right decisions. So you need to be in the room where that's what you got to do. Yeah. You need to be How... objective, right? This isn't about using the latest and greatest tools. It's not about picking something that will look great on your resume, right? We're always in pursuit of meeting business objectives. And we need to stay mindful of that. I think also, especially if you're building something or part of a composable ecosystem, I think part of that is the partnerships for the different parts that, that function together. We have a lot of customers using integrations of partners such as Valtech, and they bring the expertise across the board for the different components that can help. So you're not reliant on your internal resources to upskill quickly and learn all of these different components right off the bat. That's a really good call out. Do you find that when customers are migrating to a composable architecture or they're doing build versus buy, that there's a temptation, especially if they come from, shall we say, a more legacy mindset, that it just feels like too many services though, the flip side of that. And there's a temptation to try to buy all the services from one, or is it very clear they're like, we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket and they very much want to, they're trying to overcompensate for that. What I have seen is a kind of a sequential composability, right? So maybe they're just buying the initial components, personal experience here. They come and buy commerce tools and they start their migration plan. And then we get through kind of solutioning with them and make the determination, oh, you're going to want to replace your, your search functionality or your product catalog management. So it's not, I don't see a lot of customers really going all out and purchasing so many different components that it, they're overdoing it. It's more of a sequential. They may they may get two or three off the bat, but it would be more of an iterative approach, I would think. You mentioned the strangler pattern earlier. Do you want to just explain that to the audience who may not have heard of it? Yeah, and I, it comes from an old article that an architect, I can't remember his name, came up with about the strangler fig, which is a tree in, in Southeast Asia that kind of nests in the top of existing trees and then drops its roots down. So the, the analogy here is that your solution, especially coming off a of monolith, is you would take the approach of breaking out features, components, and slowly replacing the monolith features and components with those. So eventually you strangle it out and kill the whole thing off. Yeah, I think that was Martin Fowler. Mahila, I think you wanted to add something, but go ahead. Word of caution, strangulation is a more mature model. And at some point, you have to end it and you have to be complete because you run a very high risk if you're not mature enough to employ that model of then being stuck in the middle. And now you're running both your old systems and your new systems. So I know there's this notion in, in the marketplace that nobody likes Big Bang. I think that's a very individual decision of how you approach that transformation. And strangulation could be the appropriate choice, but recognize you need the end goal and you need to be accountable to getting to the end goal because otherwise you will create a massive mess for your organization. I, I completely yeah. agree with that. And I'm sorry if we just have a minute. So the concern there is that a lot of these customers migrating off of Monolith's legacy tech, that stuff is so ingrained that it is difficult to strangle off the features build out the components and while keeping the rest of it running. So we do have two minutes left, just to be mindful of all the panelists' time. But I know Jason did come up here to, I believe, ask a, a quick question, if possible. We would like to allow for that. No, I didn't have a quick question, but I'll yield back my time. If someone or else statement. Wants to, yeah, if someone else wants to make a quick question. Yeah, quick okay. pro tip for Sean and Scott. 
Twitter spaces tend to take about half an hour to ramp up and get their core audience. It might be worth finding a way to structure these where there's an hour of just chat, then like the meet an hour, like at that hour point. If you can find a way to do that in the future, it might help with a bigger You know, audience. I've noticed that throughout these, that near the end, we really start getting excited. <laughs> People start going at it. But either way. That's, that's really good advice. We only have basically a minute left. I'll just say thank you panelists for the discussion today and really encourage everyone to uh, check out composability.dev and hand it over to, to Scott to take us out. Awesome. I just want to thank again, all the panelists for coming up here, as Ishan said, and joining us today, really some wonderful conversations had and maybe the said we should plan something out in the future to do maybe a couple hours just in the calendar. It may not go that long, but hey, it may. And there could be some really good conversations had that could create thought leadership throughout the niche that we're in and then what we're trying to accomplish here. And I'm just really improving the lives of developers and businesses as well. Thank and the experience so, so for customers. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, that is definitely at the forefront. So thank you so much for everybody. Thank you for joining us here at JavaScript GM Live. Don't forget, we do this every Wednesday from 12 to 1 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. So if you want to join us again, please jump in. We would love to hear more about this. As far as scheduling more panel stuff out, I'm sure we'll be doing that more in the future too. But typically, we have this open mic kind of conversation, which these do turn into, which is uh, even the panel one. Yes, it had a category that, that we're on but I think it really went well. So either way, I thank you all so much for joining us today and we will see you next week. And don't forget to go to composability.dev and register to be a part of this community because we're creating this awesome community here. We've grown so much. We've grown from 80 something people on JavaScript Jam to well over 450 today within just so keep it up keep sharing if you got value from any of the speakers up here please feel free to follow them click on their face follow because if they're on anywhere else you know that well, you're probably going to get value from them there too all right so thank you all and appreciate it and we'll see you in the next one all right coming back in for the outro music if you want it if not then leave the room Bye, baby. <laughs> here it comes <laughs> all right y'all see you next time